when God created the human race, he created each, uh, each one of us with an inherent uh, need to exist in a continual state of intimate relationship with him. Not just simply because he feels, uh, you know, affection for us and so he wants us to be close to him, although that is certainly true, but it's far more than that because it is only through a close proximity to God that we can actually receive all that we need in order to exist as we were designed to exist, which means it is only as we are actually in him that we can derive a true sense of lasting joy in our lives. It is in him where we discover true love and forgiveness and acceptance and wholeness. It is only there in him where we find real peace and a sense of belonging and purpose and completeness and strength, okay? Everything that we need to live a healthy and fulfilled life, all of that, it only comes out of a genuine closeness to God. James, the brother of Jesus, said every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. James 1.17. That means all of the good things that we need and naturally long for in this life, those all come from God, which again is actually a need that he hardwired within each one of us from the very beginning so that it is intrinsic. It's, it's essential to a truly successful existence on this good earth. And yet because of the rebellion of mankind against God, that closeness which the human design requires in order to function as we were created to, that closeness, that proximity has been uh, compromised, right? And it's resulted in a drifting away from God and consequently drifting away from all that we were created to need. And so the further away from him that we get as we travel through this life, the further away we become from the source of all of those things that we need the most in this life, which is why we now have a world full of people who are depressed and hurting and broken and confused and weary and worn out, and many of them hopeless. And of course, you can name any number of specific circumstances that exist in people's lives which are related to those specific conditions I just named, but the root, the, the basis of all of those problems at the end of the day lies in our proximity or our lack of proximity to God. So uh, brokenness and dysfunction are precisely what happens. In fact, those things should be expected when we allow ourselves to become far from Him. And so in order for there to be any hope for mankind to ever regain that proximity to God that we all need, uh, there had to be a remedy, right? A way to bridge that gap. And of course, we know that remedy is Jesus Christ who did what only he could do. He, he made a way for us to be close to God again. He did it by his own atoning death and resurrection. We talked about that last week. So that now there is not only a way available to us to close the gap between us and God, but we must choose to cross that bridge if we have any hope of receiving all that he created us to need in order to be able to live the life that is healthy and complete and eternally secure in him who is our only hope. You see, Jesus didn't say, uh, to all who labor and are heavy laden, stay where you are and I will give you rest. 
That's not what he said. He said, come to me. Come here. You come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. It was an invitation to come close, proximity. And in that closeness, we're promised to be given all that we need, you, you see. Having a, a true relationship with God is so much more than just having a belief in God. It, it's about proximity. Uh, again, James said, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. James 4.8. This is the remedy for our hurried and harried and hopeless lives. It's closeness to Jesus Christ for that is where we find peace and joy and love and strength and purpose and belonging and hope. All those things that we need and long for because we were created for them. It's it simply, it's putting things back to the way he intended them to be from the beginning, where men and women actually abide in him. So we don't simply visit him on Sunday mornings. We don't, we don't just have a, a chat with him before we go to bed. We don't use him like a cosmic vending machine where we go to him when we need something and insert a prayer and he spits out an answer. No, God wants us, in fact, he created us to abide in him, to go there and then stay there. That's where your life becomes all that it's supposed to be, all right? And yet in this culture that we're living in, there are so many other persuasive and attractive voices and they're pulling at us all the time, telling us there's another way. There's another way to find peace and joy and love and belonging and completeness and hope, all of those things you need. But, but what we don't always realize is that every step we take toward those other voices, the further from God we become until we are wholly disconnected from the true source of everything that we need. And then we wonder why our lives feel so out of sync, even dysfunctional at times. It's been the case for men and women, by the way, from the very beginning. Uh, I've said it here before, the human culture constantly changes. Human nature never changes. It's why we can read these ancient stories and, and early teachings from cultures long gone and still identify with them today so powerfully because the human condition is the same throughout the ages as is the remedy uh, for that condition. And so as we continue this sermon series, working our way through the letters of John, we find the Apostle John confronting this same issue with his local church members, his congregation, because they were being led away from the church and away from God by these other voices who were telling them there was another way to get to where they wanted to be, some other uh, remedy to whatever they lacked in their lives. And so John very boldly and directly confronts the culture and the current false teachings that were swirling around the church at the time by pointing his people right back to the source of all that they needed. And the, the secret, as we'll see, was not simply believing in God. That's part of it. But it wasn't just that. It was actually abiding in him, learning to remain close to him at all times in every situation, through every trial and every temptation, to draw near to God and then remain there in him who supplies all that we need in this life, which, which we'll see today as we go. So let's pick up the story right where we left off last week at chapter 2, verse 18. 
Uh, and by the way, this theme of abiding in him, it carries all the way through the third chapter where John, through all of it, talks about six different consequences, if you will, to abiding in God. And so we're going to cover the first three of those today. And then in what will be part two of this message, we'll cover the other three uh, next week. So let's turn there together and see what we can learn about abiding in him. And, and this is the point, the, the absolute life-changing effect that it will have in your everyday life. Let's start with chapter 2 of 1 John, verses 18 and 19. Children, it is the last hour, as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So throughout the letter so far, John has been confronting this movement that started within the church by a man named Serenthus. He was a Hebrew, but he was actually uh, trained and educated in mysticism in Egypt. And he was teaching a false gospel. Uh, it later became known as Gnosticism in the second and third centuries. It's a false religion. And under his leading, there was a group of itinerant preachers who were going around to the churches and spreading this false gospel and leading some of the church members, actually a lot of them, away from the church and out of fellowship with the body of believers there. And if you've been here the past two weeks, you know all about that. So, uh, by the way, if you haven't been and you're interested, you can always go to our YouTube channel or website and catch up on those sermons. They're all posted there. But the point is... Without going back through all of that history with Serenthus and his followers today, John is continuing to address what is happening within the church because of those false teachers and their message. So he says, children, it is the last hour. And have you, as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Now, first of all, uh, uh, the first century Christians considered the entire period of time between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus to be the last days. That was a commonly held view, uh, however long a period of time that ends up actually being. So when we read the biblical writers using that kind of terminology, uh, they weren't saying that they knew Jesus would return in their lifetime, which of course we know he didn't. However, they did make it a habit to watch for the signs of the end of the age just as Jesus instructed them to in Matthew 24. And likewise, they watched and waited for him to return with great expectancy every day of their lives with the hope and anticipation that he could come back at any moment, which should be a lesson for us because that is exactly how we should view the second coming of Christ now. Understanding that we don't know when he will return, yet ever preparing and anticipating for that great day, which could happen at any moment. And one of those signs is the coming of false Christs, as Jesus described them. Again, in Matthew 24, as John uh, refers to them here as Antichrist, and really even before uh, Jesus talked about false Christ. There were well-known teachings in ancient uh, Jewish apocalyptic writings about this powerful end-time person who would oppose God, which is why John says, you have heard that Antichrist is coming, because they were already well familiar uh, with that concept of a false Christ. But then John adds, many Antichrist have come. It's a direct reference to these people who were once members of John's own church, 
who have now left and are leading others away from the faith as well. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So it was actually an act of grace by God that they went out so that everyone could know who they were and what they were, which just underscores the fact that not everyone in the church then or now has a true relationship with Jesus Christ. There's no real proximity to him for some who claim to be believers. They may be among us, but that doesn't mean they are of us. And one of the biggest differences that shows up between those who actually abide in him and those who don't is the presence or absence of actual objective truth in what they believe and teach to others. And that's what John is pointing out as he continues verses 20 through 25. Let's read it together. But you've been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the, the promise that he made to us, eternal life. So again, John calls out these false teachers who were denying that Jesus was the Christ by juxtaposing or by comparing them with the true believers by saying that those who have a real relationship with Jesus Christ, they know the truth. So he says in verse 24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. He's referring to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he says, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And back in verse 20, he says, if uh, you've been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. We'll talk more about the anointing, uh, by the way, in a moment. But the point that John is making over and over again here is that when you abide in Him, in God, His truth abides in you. So that any time you're confronted by anyone who's teaching anything that is contrary to what Jesus taught either directly or through other biblical writers, then what you are dealing with, according to John, is the spirit of antichrist or false Christ. And it's important to note here uh, that when John uses the word antichrist as he does in verse 22 or uh, antichristus in, um, in the ancient Greek, that word not only refers to someone uh, who's in opposition to Christ, but it also refers to, to one who sees themselves as a substitution for the Christ, a replacement for Jesus Christ. So Antichrist isn't just about being against the Christ. It's actually trying to take the place of Christ in your life. That's why people who uh, are consistently the most susceptible to that spirit of Antichrist, false Christ in their life, are those who are the farthest away from the true Christ. Jesus Christ. You see, if you're in close proximity to Jesus, when you actually abide in him, and we'll talk more about that, there's no room for another version of him in your life, for a false version of him. You don't need a replacement when you have the real thing. 
That's why John says, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Because when you're abiding in Him, you're abiding in the truth. And when you're abiding in the truth, you're abiding in Him. There's no room there for counterfeit versions of Him or counterfeit versions of truth when you're abiding in the real thing. On the contrary, when you're far from Him, not abiding in him, then when someone or something comes along and offers to take the place of Jesus Christ in your life, you're far more likely to open yourself up to that spirit of a false Christ. Why? Because you were created with an inherent need to have him in your life. But if you're missing that in your life, then there is a longing, whether you realize it or not, there's a longing to fill what is missing, and of course, there's no shortage of false Christs or false gospels which are more than happy to fill that void inside of you. Many of them will even tell you it's okay to even believe in Jesus, but at some point, they'll usually add that he's also not the only way. You can also get, get to where you need to be by these other replacements, these other uh, religions, these other gods, these other messages. Listen, Jesus was very clear when he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father, what, except through me. John 14, 6. In other words, there is no other way because I am the only way. There's no other truth because I am. I am the only truth. There's no other life because I am the only life. It's why in verse 25, John says there's a promise attached to abiding in Jesus Christ and his truth, and that promise is eternal life. Because Jesus Christ, the true Messiah, the one and only Savior, he's the only way to eternal life after this life. There is no other way. Other religions and other messages in our culture will tell you that there's room for compromise. You can have a little bit of Jesus in your life and a little bit of a lot of other things too, and it's okay because there are many paths to peace and joy and love and meaning and hope and even eternal promise. By the way, that's called pluralism. But listen, if those other religions are true, then Jesus isn't the Christ. If those other gospels are true, then everything Jesus said is a lie. If those other gods can offer you anything of value to enhance your life, then Jesus Christ cannot offer you anything. Because according to Jesus himself, he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. He alone is the source of all that we need. He said there is no other way. And there's no room for compromise. It's either all of him or none of him. So there's no version of abiding in Jesus Christ that makes allowances for other gospels or other gods or other messages or other pathways to fulfillment to be sprinkled in along with him. No, because if there was, then what he said isn't true. And if what he said isn't true, then he isn't the one and only son of God the one true Messiah, which means he died for nothing 
It was all a sham, a colossal misunderstanding at best, or the greatest lie ever perpetrated on all of humankind at worst. The Bible is the most published, most disseminated, most read book in the world. In fact, the second closest isn't even remotely close. Christianity is by far and away the world's largest religion, billions of followers. If Jesus isn't who he said he was, then all other deceptions ever leveled against the human race combined pale in comparison to this one. And yet, if he is who he says he is, then there is no other truth but that which is found in him. And the only way to know that truth is to abide in him. You see, that's what John's trying to get across here to his church. He says, guys, you don't need to waste your time with all of these other false messages and false teachers. There's no point in looking for other ways to fulfillment, to peace, to joy, to hope, to strength, to love. There's no other way to heaven. Stop looking because you already have the truth of Jesus Christ living inside of you. Let's keep reading verses 26 and 27. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So right after telling them, when you abide in God, his truth abides in you, he turns back to the subject of, of God's anointing. And he says, the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. So it's really important that we understand what John means when he says anointing here because the actual Greek word that he uses for anointing, the word chrisma, it's only found in two places in the entire New Testament, here and in verse 20 that we just read. And it specifically refers to the special endowment of the Holy Spirit. In other words, when you abide in him, his spirit abides in you, which is not only a great truth, but it's also a brilliant use of the language from this fisherman. Because this particular word for anointing here and the word that John uses earlier for antichrist are, of course, both connected to the word Christos or Christ. And all three of those words are derived from the same Greek verb, creo, which means to anoint. So John is directly refuting the claims of legitimacy by these false teachers by calling them the very antithesis of God's anointing, while the true followers of Christ not only experience that true anointing, but that anointing in fact lives, it dwells inside of us as an ongoing presence of the Spirit of God Almighty himself. In Acts 2.38, when the crowds of people were listening to Peter preach, they became deeply convicted about their own sin, their own distance from God, and they asked Peter, what shall we do? To which he responded, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
It is that very spirit who the Apostle Paul says dwells in you in Romans 8.11. It is the same spirit who enables us to understand the truth so that we don't need anyone else's version of the truth. That's why John says you have no need that anyone should teach you. Now, I'll just pause here and mention this is one of the places in the Bible where context really matters because this happens to be one of those passages in Scripture that gets mauled to death uh, when people use it out of context. I've had folks over the years reference this verse to me when explaining why they don't go to church or why they don't go to Bible studies or engage in any kind of discipleship in their lives at all because they say, well, the Bible teaches us that I have no need that anyone should teach me. <laughs> well, first of all, uh, John makes this statement, you have no need that anyone should teach you as he's in the process of teaching them. Which makes absolutely no sense if you take his statement to mean that none of us ever needs teaching from anyone else once we have the Spirit of Christ inside of us. Furthermore, in several uh, places in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians uh, 12, uh, Ephesians 4, Romans 12, Paul talks about the fact that God gave teachers to the church as a gift for the express purpose of teaching. Why would God do that if we don't need to be taught by anyone else? Uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, Paul says, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. I can go on and on and on here. The point is, when John says you have no need that anyone should teach you. He's referring to these false teachers in the church who are trying to instruct the believers in the way of this false gospel. And John says, look, you don't need that because the spirit of Christ who abides inside of you already will teach you all that you need to know, including who to listen to and who to silence in your life. But the key to that is to abide in him. All right, throughout these passages, as John is teaching them to abide in God, the word abide that he keeps using is the Greek word meno. It means to remain. Abiding in him means remaining in him. This is the, this is the key to the entire teaching today. Because I would say that most Christians probably understand that when we become born again, right, it isn't a little Jesus that comes and lives inside of us. Right? It's his Holy Spirit who comes and lives inside of us. And John is saying when you abide in Christ, his spirit abides in you. When we remain in him, not when we come to visit him on Sundays or, or have a quick chat or our list of requests in the evening. John is saying when we stay, when we remain in him, then he remains in us. He says if you abide in me, I will abide in you, draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. In John 14, 23, Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. That's Jesus talking. You see, every time we move toward God, he responds. By the way, it's not, it's, it's not that he can't respond without us doing something first. To be clear, God doesn't need us. He doesn't. We need him. 
In fact, the only reason we can come to him at all is because he draws us to Christ first. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. But because he loves us, he allows us to then make that choice when he's drawing us. We have a choice. We can draw near to him so that we're never being forced to do so. But once we're there, he says, now stay. Stay here. Stay here with me. And I'll stay here with you. And all those things you're looking for, peace, purpose, answers, joy, love, understanding, direction, I have all of that. I'm the source of all of that. If you'll just stay here with me, I'll give you everything you need. That's why Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, everything, that's the key, in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in, that's an important word, in Christ Jesus, as we abide in Christ Jesus. In other words, if you need peace, God will give you peace when you abide in him. Okay, when Paul says, in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, that's a wonderful picture of someone abiding in him. Prayers and requests and thanksgiving and everything that we do, not, not once a week or once a day. No, in everything that we do, that's what it means to abide, to remain in him. We stay there in that constant state of prayer and supplication and conversation, thanksgiving with the Spirit of God inside of us. So in everything we do, Everything we pray. In everything we do, we meditate on God's word. In everything we do, we listen for the voice of his spirit within us to guide us and direct us every single day. You know, when people talk about that little voice inside of them, well, if you're a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, that little voice is the voice of the Holy Spirit within us. And in truth, it isn't a little voice at all. It is the same voice who spoke the heavens and the earth into existence. And now it lives inside of us. Are you kidding me? Yet we've made it a little voice, a distant voice, because we rarely listen to it. I was just talking to someone about this this week. He called me. He said, hey, Rob, I think I may be going crazy. I said, you're already crazy. It can't get worse. No, I didn't say that. He's actually one of my closest friends. That's not what I said to him. But I said, why do you think you're going crazy? He said, because it's as if God has been speaking to me a lot lately. And I've been listening to this voice, not an audible voice, but the voice inside of me. And all kinds of these amazing and wonderful things have been happening as a result. To, to be honest, they're things I can't really explain logically. And he went on to tell me about some of that. We're going to talk more about that soon. I said, you know, for a Christian, that's supposed to be normal. That's actually the way it's supposed to be for all of us, where we go about our daily lives in a constant state of conversation, talking to God and listening to God and all the time remaining in him. I was uh, down at the glasses store down in Greenville in the city proper the other day getting my glasses adjusted and uh, I, they finished and I left. I told them it was good. I drove all the way back here to the office and they're crooked when I got back. So, oh. 
So I got back in the car and I drove all the way back down there and I said, hey, can you do the thing again? And they did the thing. And, and she said, you know, you ought to stick around a little while to make sure they're going to be good. And I said, that's cool. So I'll go, I'll go get a Starbucks or something and I'll come back. So I went out and got in my car and I pulled up to the, to the intersection and uh, the Holy Spirit said to me, I want you to go in that furniture store over there. I said, okay. Never been in there before. I pull up. There's no one in the parking lot. I walk in. There's no one in the store except employees. And the lady behind the counter says to me, can I help you? I said, nah, I'm, I'm just kicking around, killing time. She said, well, is there anything specific you'd like to look at while you're here? I said, well, I, there's, we need a desk for one of our employees, the place where I work. So, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll look at desks while I'm here. She said, well, let me go get the head designer for you. I said, no, don't do that. I said, I'm honestly just killing time. And I don't want to waste her time. She said, okay. So I walked off to the desks. And about a minute later, the head designer comes walking out. <clears throat> and she starts asking me questions about desks. So we're having a great conversation. And toward the end of it, she says to me, why don't you give me your business card? I hadn't told her what I do. And uh, I'll contact you when we have something that's kind of what you're interested in. And I said, you know, that'd be great. So I open up my wallet. I said, I, I'm sorry. I've given out all my cards. She said, yeah, I've heard that before. She said, it's okay if you don't want to give me your information. I said, no, no, I'm, honestly, I've given out all my cards. I said, give me a piece of paper and I'll write it down. I'm happy for you to have my, my information. She said, okay, great. Write down your name, number, email, and uh, what you do. And I said, okay. So I'm writing all this down and she goes, uh, oh, you're a pastor. And I said, yeah. She said, well, I need to tell you a story. I said, okay. She said, last week, my husband of 30 some years, had a massive heart attack. And by the time the ambulance got there, there was no pulse and no heartbeat, flatline. He was dead. She said they began to give him uh, CPR, and just like in the movie, hitting him with these paddles and his body's lurching up and the whole horrible scene. And she said after a, a, quite a long time, nine or 10 minutes or more of being dead, his heart began to beat again. She said, they rushed him to the hospital. He had emergency surgery, triple bypass. And three days later, they sent us home and said he's going to recover. Amazing. So she's telling me all about this. She said, now, here's the part I want to ask you. She said, we don't go to church. Not particularly religious people. And she said, this just happened a few days ago, and you're the first pastor I've met since then, so it seems logical to ask you. She said, now I know we're in Greenville, and wherever your church is, I would come to visit normally, but she said, I won't do that because I drive in here every single day to work, and I'm not driving all the way in here on Sundays. Is there any way you would know about a church where we live? It's all the way up in Traveler's Rest. <laughs> I said, there is one church I know about. <laughs> she said, really, is it good? I said, I'm pretty sure it's the best church in Traveler's Rest. <laughs> she said, really, is it, uh, is it contemporary? I said, oh, yeah, it's contemporary. She said, are the people, are they friendly? I said, hey, I'm telling you, you'll never be in a church that is as friendly as this one. She said, wow, you know a lot about it. I said, I really do. She said, do you know the pastor? I said, I know him well. She said, well, can you, tell me, can you tell me more about it? I said, I can tell you all about it. I said, it's my church. She, she was amazed. Couldn't believe it. Both of us stood there. And I said to her, 
Now I know why the Holy Spirit told me to come in here today. And they're going to come to our church. When you abide in him, his spirit abides in you. He talks to you. He will guide you through life. And I'm telling you, that should actually be common for Christians. But the key is that we have to abide. We have to remain. We have to stay there. Uh, we've got to hurry, guys. Let's keep reading. Uh, verse 28. We're going to go all the way through verse 10 of chapter 3. Uh, and we'll stop there for today. Are you okay to stay with me a few more minutes? We okay? All right. Uh, verse 28 through verse 10 of chapter 3. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he's righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we will know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. But this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So John has a lot to say about sin and righteousness in the last part of chapter 2 and this first part of chapter 3. We talked about this quite a bit last week, that John has been clear from the beginning of this letter that we're all guilty of sinning. So he's not saying er uh, everyone who ever sins is not of God, otherwise uh, we're pretty much all doomed. No, first of all, he says in verse 3, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Okay, for the follower of Christ, Jesus is our hope, which means our faith is in him and his righteousness not in our own moral uprightness, right? In fact, the, the Gnostics were spreading this false teaching. Uh, they were known to be morally virtuous people. Generally speaking, their behavior was great, just as we see with some followers of some other religions today. But our hope and our purity doesn't come through our own moral behavior. No, it comes through Christ alone and his righteousness in us. So when John talks about those who make a practice of sinning, he's talking about those who live their lives apart from Christ, not in proximity to him. For them, there is no conviction. There is no repentance. There is no cleansing from sin. So they keep on sinning unaware that they're even without hope. For the Christian, however... Although we will always, of course, struggle with sin in this life, we have a hope because we're purified by his atoning work on the cross. And so now, when we confess our sin and we turn back to Christ, we're renewed with his righteousness, made pure by his purity. 
In other words, when you abide in him, his righteousness abides in you. And he says that again in contrast to a sizable number of people in the church who were claiming to be righteous but teaching a false doctrine and dividing the church because of it. So he says, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. It's important to remember as we read through these letters of John that we always keep in view the context, the specific situation that John was addressing here, which involved these followers of Serenthus, this false teacher who was trying to influence the true believers in the church. And so John is quick to point out and clear in his teaching that our righteousness comes from Christ as we abide in him not from ourselves. Furthermore, John says it's obvious which is which because those who are not living according to God's righteous word, those who are practicing lawlessness, they're dividing the church and yet claiming to be righteous by their own virtue. While those who do abide in Jesus Christ, John says they act like Jesus Christ. They love their brothers and sisters in the church. They're not perfect, but they obey his commands and they follow his word as they abide in his spirit. So although we as Christians may never be completely without sin this side of heaven, still we should be transformed by his Holy Spirit within us to the point that we desire to live lives of purity and holiness. And even though we'll fall short at times by his spirit within us, we have his power available to us, all the power that is needed to live righteously as we abide in him. Charles Spurgeon once said, the grace that does not change my life will not save my soul. John seems to agree that although we have not attained perfection by any stretch, there is a stark contrast between those followers of Christ and everyone else to the extreme that in verse 1 he says the world does not know us because it doesn't know him. The Apostle Peter said, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul, 1 Peter 2.11. Followers of Jesus Christ are strangers in this land. So why do so many Christians work so hard to show the world how much they can be like the world? Who are we trying to impress? Our culture? Are we trying to convince people that Christians can be culturally relevant? Because Jesus was nothing like this world. And yet in the entire history of humankind, no one has ever been more relevant than Jesus Christ. We're supposed to be different, set apart, unrecognizable to the world. So why does it bother us when we go out into the world as we're supposed to and the world doesn't recognize us? Why does that bother us so much? Why do we feel like we have to fit in with whatever the world happens to be up to? Because if we're truly abiding in him, listen, we won't fit in. We're not supposed to. No, the world is not supposed to recognize us as one of their own because we don't look anything like the world. Why? Because we abide in Jesus Christ, which means we act like and look like Jesus Christ and his righteousness then abides in us so that we're in the world, yes, but not of it. 
we shine like great beacons of life piercing through the cloud of darkness that covers this earth until all who do not know him must face the reality when they face us that the only way to righteousness, the only way to forgiveness, the only way to truth and peace and love, the only way to know God who is the source of all good things, the only way is to abide in Jesus Christ alone. But see, the church has been trying too hard for too long to look like the world because we thought it would attract more people. I've been to all the conferences and, and tried all the stuff they tell us to do. But I'll tell you what's happened. When, when the church looks just like the world, people encounter us and they say, why do I need Jesus? Christians are no different than we are. So that strategy of trying to impress our culture has actually had the opposite effect. And now the church in America is shrinking at an alarming rate because what we thought would make us culturally relevant has made us utterly irrelevant. The good news is, when we turn back to Christ, which I'm praying for the church in America to do, unashamedly, when we abide in him alone, he fills us with his righteousness to the point that we once again resemble him and our testimonies restored and the people in the world once again see us as different as they should, okay? Look, we're intentionally designed and created by God to abide in Jesus Christ. And so when that doesn't happen in our lives, things don't function like they're supposed to. Right, your car engine was designed and created uh, to have oil flowing through it. If you deprive it of that oil, not only will it get worn down, but eventually something's going to break. Well, here's a newsflash. We're living in a broken world full of people who are worn down to the point of dysfunction because humankind is depriving itself of the very thing it was designed to need, a closeness to God. Even so many Christians today are worn out. Some are dysfunctional. Some even at the point of breaking, longing for peace, longing for purpose, longing for forgiveness and acceptance and belonging. They're searching for love and strength and hope because we've alienated ourselves from the very source of all those things we're so desperate for in our lives, the very things we were designed to need. And yet the source of all those things is right there available to every single one of us. And he's just saying, if you'll come to me, I'll come to you. If you'll draw near to me, I'll draw near to you. Come, abide in me. It doesn't mean all your problems will instantly disappear, by the way. I wish they did. But what it does mean is that you'll have everything you need to walk through those problems. Whatever's happening in your life without breaking, without wearing out, without losing hope. In fact, when you abide in him, you can actually experience perfect peace, joy unspeakable, supernatural strength, and unwavering hope even in the very midst of those troubled times and those problems. So much so that when the world looks at us, they won't recognize us because in good times and in bad, we will look differently to them than what they're used to seeing. 
We'll act differently than what they're used to seeing. We'll live our lives differently than what they're used to, and it won't look anything like the world. In fact, it'll be so radically different than the world, and yet the most relevant life they've ever seen lived because of our proximity, our closeness to God. Don't you want that in your life? Don't you want to be so close to him that you don't have to worry or fret or fall apart when hard times descend upon you as we all know they will? Don't you want to be so close to him that no matter what's happening around us, you're always full of hope and confidence and peace and assurance knowing that he's with you? Don't you want to be so close to him that you recognize his voice when he speaks? guiding and protecting and encouraging you throughout your daily life? I do. I want all of that. And the key to all of that is learning to abide in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, not just listening to us when we pray, but actually answering those prayers. Your word says when we draw near to you, you draw near to us. The problem is we don't always stay there very long. We haven't necessarily learned how to remain there, how to abide in you. So, Father, may your word for us begin to take root in our hearts today, even as we leave from here, that we would learn to pray without ceasing, learn to stay close to you, learn to remain in your presence, to abide there until hearing your voice becomes commonplace, even to the point where the world won't recognize us because we live so radically different than the world. Do in us what only you can do. And then when people are attracted to your spirit so active within us, yet they don't even know what it is or why they're drawn to us, may we have the courage and conviction to share the truth with them. The truth that abides in us as we continue to abide in you. That's how to make disciples. That's how to please you. That's how we live as you designed and created us to in close proximity to you. So we ask you to begin that good work in us as we go from here. We give you all the praise and glory and honor today as we pray in the strong and mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I love you so much. I kept you guys way too long. I'm sorry. But I'm praying this week that his word will just do that, will begin to grow in you and take hold. As it's more than just believing in something. It's more than just saying a simple prayer. I got the card. I'm a Christian. No, it's far more. It's abiding in him. And the beautiful thing is all we have to do is take that one step forward toward him. He'll wrap you in his arms give you everything you need for this life. I love you so much. I got to let you go. I'll see you next Sunday. You're dismissed.